we're going to turn to Luke 5. <laughs> and while we turn there, whoa, it, it is terrible. You're right. So as you turn to Luke 5, we're going to start in verse 1. But just a quick overview of Luke. Luke was a doctor and a historian. Um, he wrote the third, or the third of the four Gospels. And it's actually the longest book in the New Testament. A two-part series being Luke and Acts. And it's also chronological. If you look in chapter 1, verse 3, it says he wrote it in consecutive order. So we, we can take that, that, that he's laying out the story in a detailed way. And he wrote it for uh, his benefactor, Theophilus. There's debate on who Theophilus was. He has a title he calls him most excellent. So likely he was like an elected or a public official, but he was definitely a new believer. And at that time, it seemed that there was a lot floating around there about what did or didn't happen. So Luke compiled eyewitness accounts and put them together so that there could be a confident reassurance of what actually happened. So starting in verse 1, I'd like to read through the whole thing, and then, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the, at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water, uh, sorry, I lost my spot, and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we go into your word now, um, again, we ask for illumination. We ask for discernment. Uh, we ask that our hearts and our minds would be open to being changed by your word. Um, I ask especially for myself for a cleared tongue and boldness in proclaiming your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So, I'll tell you a quick story. A huge crowd was watching the famous tightrope walker Blondin cross Niagara Falls one day in 1860. He crossed it numerous times, a thousand foot trip, 160 feet above the raging water. He not only walked across it, he also pushed a wheelbarrow across it. One little boy just stared in amazement. You just imagine it. So after completing, that's how my kids watch TV. <laughs> so after completing a crossing, Blondin looked at that little boy and he said, do you believe I could take a person across there? And the little boy says, yes, sir, I do. Blondin says, well then, son, get in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so too with us, like we know God's word to be true. 
And, and some of us have seen things in our own lives that we can't, there's no other way but God. But do we trust him enough to put both feet in and go wherever he leads us? I know in my own life the answer has been no at times. And the problem is we lead complex, chaotic lives. And it's easy to feel like the Bible doesn't answer my issues and the challenges I'm facing right now. How do we go from trusting our senses and experiences to trusting completely in God's word and then, more importantly, obeying it? So here we have in verse 1, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around, uh, pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So the first thing we see in verse 1 is now it happened. Now is going to be timing language, and it denotes that a story is not, we're getting into a new story. Um, and what had happened previously is Jesus had gone through the wilderness temptations. He'd uh, done some of his first miracles and started his ministry, and he'd also traveled around Judea. As in Judea, the land of the Jews, not necessarily the Roman district. And the crowd was pressing around him. So we'd have to imagine this crowd, probably more than in this room, I could imagine standing in the center of this room and everybody circling around. The outside person probably could hear. So you, there wouldn't be a need to press in. But they were so big that probably between chatter or whatever else is going on, they're having to press in. So this is quite a significant crowd, and it's causing a logistical issue in the army which I am in, we talk about logistics a lot. <laughs> and he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So that's not a very common term for us, and it wasn't for me, uh, especially in the first times of reading this, but it's the Sea of Galilee. Uh, actually, could we flip over to that map? So as we already read through it, there's no spoiler alerts. We see that Simon Peter, who's getting done, and Simon Peter was from Capernaum. So it's it's that part of the Sea of Galilee that we're going to assume that they were at because you're not going to get done for the day miles away from home. Um, and actually, we can flip to the next picture too so we can get kind of just an image of actually what the, the land looks like. Nice. So obviously water and some beautiful rolling hills. But you could even see there, you know, you, you imagine. Ah, we'll get to that in a sec. <laughs> I'm allowed to deviate. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. Right? As, as this crowd is pressing in and he's trying to talk to people, he sees the boats and, and we know where the story leads. But you also have fishermen out and washing their nets. Well, as you're washing, you're going to do that at the end of your day, but you're also picking out maybe all the green stuff. For anybody that's ever thrown a lure into the water, you know that there's a lot of green stuff that comes out and, and it'll get tangled and when it dries in your net, it's nasty and it makes it difficult the next day. And maybe they're also mending it too. You would assume that if small tears are happening, it's best to fix those types of things when they're small. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. This is weird. And he got into one of the boats. Excuse me, hello, who are you? You can almost imagine like somebody, a tradesman being done for the day, putting away their things, cleaning out maybe their work truck, and somebody randomly getting in and going, hey, can you just take me to the corner? Do I know you? <laughs> Peter did know Jesus at this time, though. It, in chapter 4, 
verses 38 through 31, excuse me, through 41, he'd healed his mother-in-law, and then he'd healed more in his house and even cast out demons. So, as we saw, Luke is a consecutive chronology. So, for all our chosen fans, I love it too. But it's not in the right order. (laughs) Trust your Bibles, enjoy the chosen. So he, he knew him, and obviously he had a bit of credibility because he'd done the miracle of healing his mother-in-law, good thing or bad thing. <laughs> I love my mother-in-law. <laughs> We're going to back up. <laughs> and he asked him to put out a little way from the land, and this makes sense. If you've ever been on a fishing boat or just a boat in general, your voice carries over water. So from that map we saw before, you can imagine if there was just maybe a little a curve to the shore where people could kind of gather in a semicircle, you could probably talk to a lot more people. So this makes a lot of sense. And he sat down, which was a typical, typical of, a, of a teacher or rabbi at that time, when they would teach, unlike today where we stand up in front of a crowd, they sit down, and that's the position of teaching. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. The first thing to understand about that we're seeing here, the author is showing us a point of emphasis. He's going from the greater to the lesser. Not that, and if I say Peter, Simon Peter, it's the same person. Same with Gennesaret. If I say Galilee, I mean the same thing. But not that Peter was any less than the crowd. It's that numerically, he goes from this large thing and we're going to zero in on one person. So our story pivots. And he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. This is, again, atypical of how people talk because it's not called catching. It's called fishing for a reason because you're not often going to catch. So he spoke with an uncommon authority. And just the the instructions are weird. And and in verse 5, we see that Simon Peter acknowledges the weirdness of this request. Simon answered and said, Master, We worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. So what you hear is, and if you're a parent, you've heard this, yeah, but. I hear yeah, but a lot. And it's yeah, but usually I don't want to. That's fantastic. I wasn't asking. (laughs) But what Peter is giving Jesus, is an, it, it is a logical, by human understanding, a logical objection to what he's asking him to do. You can imagine he's done with his work day or work night, so he's tired. He probably smells bad, and he is most likely hungry. He caught nothing. So, like, I've been out there. I know what you want me to do, but, like, I'm tired. So, you know, maybe he says this, and, like, he's hoping that, Oh, never mind. I, you know what? Don't go ahead. We can do it tomorrow. Additionally, for anybody that does like to fish in here, you don't go fishing in the middle of the day. You go at dawn, dusk, overnight. Those are the times where you catch fish. So it makes no sense again to do it right now. And Peter knows what makes sense because who was the professional? Maybe he knew Jesus was a carpenter, but he knew he did miracles and he walked around teaching people. But like, this is my boat. I know what I'm doing. Let's not do it right now. Please change your mind. And 
let's not forget the fact that this isn't just like drop the nets in and you're all done and you'll be all done. It, it, you know, it didn't work. This is like we had in our house recently, a lot of jam was made for gifts. Jam doesn't just happen. It takes time. So it'd be the equivalent of me being like, I know you just got done, Hannah. Could you make one more jar? You can't just make one more jar. It's a whole event. And same with dropping the nets in. He just got done cleaning them, and now you want me to put them back in? This is a time commitment that I was not prepared for. I'm going to be late for dinner or breakfast, whatever you would call it. But then we see the word but, which is showing that we're going to take a 180-degree turn from where we were previously going in the text. I will do as you say and let down the nets. This makes sense, right? I, he was face-to-face -face with them, right? Normally, like, we even see it online nowadays. People, when they don't have a face in front of them, they get very bold. But when somebody's around, we're going to be polite. Like, you healed my mother-in-law. Thanks. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but it makes sense that, okay, I'll do it. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. You can see there the word began is in italics, meaning it wasn't originally there in the text. So it literally says, and their nets to break. Well, we know from the end of the story, they brought in the hall. So they didn't break, but you can imagine that the writer's trying to show you it was on the very edge. The sinews of the fibers are starting to rip and give way. There was so many fish. And you can also imagine, it doesn't say it immediately happened, but it likely didn't take very long. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats, so they began to sink. What we haven't talked about so far was the other boat that was with them when we started with the two. We know this later in the story to be um, James and John, but imagining it from their perspective, you could see Jesus coming up, getting into Simon's boat. You're sitting there washing your nets like, What's this guy doing? Oh, that's that guy that healed his mother-in-law. Poor guy. He's washing it. And he's going out. He's going to sit and teach. And maybe they're listening to while he's teaching. And they're starting to throw the nets in. They're done for the day. Why is he going out further? Whatever. I got places to be. But all of a sudden you hear, Hey! Hey! And you see hands. We don't know exactly where they were, but I assume they were on the shore. And they come out to help him. The story, you read it, and it seems like it's something that happened like that, but it didn't. This took time. They were sitting there fighting, getting more and more exhausted as this overwhelming amount of fish was trying to take their boats and their nets under, taking their entire livelihood away. They filled both these boats so that they began to sink. Again, they didn't sink. But knowing the Sea of Galilee, and, and if you're familiar with stories about it, you know that the weather quickly changes. And you can imagine the water's just barely starting to go over the edge as, it, as the waves come up. For a professional fisherman, you would be nervous. We got to get in. And then verse 8, the entire story pivots on its head. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord. For I am a sinful man. First glance, you just read this and you go, yeah, I get it, right? He's amazed. This is a ton of fish. I get it. 
There's something, though, that doesn't make sense here. It doesn't sit right as you read it over and over. Think about the other miracles Jesus performed. The man with the withered hand, for example, or maybe the blind men or the lepers, they didn't fall to their knees and talk about their sin. They could do everything but be joyful and run around and tell everybody. So why this reaction? How would you respond is a good question to ask yourself. We got to look back at verse 5. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. Hey, the guy's having faith. He's doing it. Are we sure? Upon your word could easily mean if you say so, whatever you want. I've said that. Whatever you want, we'll just do that. But in, in his mind, he, he likely was, was doubting the fact that like, I'll show you who the professional is when I drop this down. I'm going to catch nothing. But instead, he was smacked with the fact that, that Jesus had command over this and he didn't know who he was talking to. So instead, he wants Jesus to go away because he's instantly convicted about how wrong he is. And verse 9 tells us, for amazement had seized him, likely due to his conviction, but also the overwhelming amount of fish. See, nets in boats, they're designed to catch what you can reasonably expect to catch. They're not designed to sink. They're not designed to break. So what they caught was beyond any kind of understanding, any expectation of reality. Reality was broken. It wasn't, right? It really happened. But their perception of reality was broken that day because people don't get to tell fish to get in the net. But this one did. And you can imagine the amazement seizing them. In the Greek, it's actually the idea of, of like being wrapped up in it or like that deer in the headlights look that you can't even look away as the car accident happens. And all his companions... I'll go back, start at the beginning of the verse. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon... And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. Jesus gives us a prescription here of not having fear. And, and the Greek word, which I'm not going to try and pronounce because I am not a great student of Greek, but it means to literally be seized with fear. Where they were seized with amazement, Jesus tells them they were seized with fear and they don't need to be because he has a new purpose of catching men. So in verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It probably didn't take much time. You would think the longer you think about this, you're getting an offer to follow him, or maybe that's just your only desire after this. But the more you think about it, the, likely, the, the less likely it is to happen. And I know as I read the story over and over, my human, physical understanding of the world, I could only think about, but what about the fish? What would you do with them? You don't just let it spoil. I hate throwing food away. Well, the Chosen did actually offer a pretty good explanation. Maybe Zebedee took care of it. But that's not the important part. The fish don't matter in this. What, matter, what matters is that lives were changed and a new path and a new purpose was given. So we move into application of all of this. And, and going back to our problem, the problem is how do we go from trusting our senses, experiences, and feelings to trusting completely in God's word and then obeying it. Because it seems like I do it every day, but then if you accurately look back at what my day is, or when you confess your sins, 
I see that I, I personally don't live the life God has for me. I could have told that person about Jesus just then, and I chose not to. We're not doing it the way God wants us to do it necessarily, most likely. And step one is we need to break down the walls of doubt because God's word is true amidst our doubts. It doesn't change it at all. And it's a matter of objective versus subjective. Subjectively, I know this one time somebody was praying for something and maybe their mother died or, or a bad situation happened or Ah, but that news story about that new finding, I just don't see how it can be. Those are your subjective truths. Objectively, the, God of, the word of God is true. We see evidence everywhere for a flood. Regardless of what people say, the flood happened. How does Israel still exist today? Because God, that's God's people. That doesn't happen. You don't see other civilizations or peoples still sticking around not the size of Israel, not with everything they messed up. He even raised a man from the dead. And atheists don't even dispute the death of Jesus. And they don't have an answer for where his body is. We can so quickly and easily get stuck in our subjective reasoning, but objectively we need to look at it. And, it's, and it comes back to we doubt because we're not giving God the proper authority with our understanding. His word and his truth should be the ultimate authority. And, and I'm especially guilty of it, of, of not seeing it for what it truly is. Because it's easy to say, yeah, I believe it. But it's something else to bet everything on it. If we could put up the D.L. Moody quote. D.L. Moody said, trust in yourself and you're doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends and they will die and leave you. Trust in reputation and some slanderous tongue may blast it but trust in God and you are never going to be confounded in time or eternity. You can take his quote and put it in two categories. The top being all the way through some slanderous tongue may blast it. Put that in the category of fail and the bottom part, you can put it in the category of victory. And it's a matter of the temporal versus eternal too, right? We objectively and subjectively don't always view it correctly. We doubt because we lack giving, we're not giving God's word the proper authority. But we're also not looking far enough down. We're only looking at what tomorrow has, what I'm going to eat today, why the Packers are better than the Browns. <laughs> is our focus on where we're going to end up? Is our focus on where that person that I know isn't saved is going to end up? Or is it on what's convenient right now? And as we break down the walls of doubt, we need to be about knowing and going. Going from we can trust God's word to I will trust God's word. And you got to ask yourself the question, where and what in my life do I need to submit to God? Because we think our way is better, much like Peter did. It's natural. We, we always think, it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. We think we're better at things than we are. We're not better than God. So where and what do we need to submit to him? And then immediately ask yourself, what will I place a limit on that submission? And if you can't say no, undoubtedly, in bold print, you're already placing a limit. I struggle with this. And I'm sure many of you do too. And being about that knowing and going, submitting is key. But then it starts with being disciplined. And we discipline ourselves with regular constant time in the word and prayer. 
focusing on God because that's truth. And we respond to it. Let me back up. So with that time in the word, we then respond to it and then step forward and this opens the door to experiencing God's worldview. A simple way to, to remember that is if you know and then go, you will grow. So we break down the walls of doubt. We be about the knowing and the going. And then the last thing we need to see is that it's not a bad thing. It's an enthusiastic privilege. Because God doesn't need us to obey. It's our benefit. He wants us there. I often have to go grab firewood and bring it inside because fires don't feed themselves and I like being warm and Esther and Mac love to help. I assure you I will get it done faster without them. But I want them there. For one, they're fun to talk to and they say some goofy things. But at the same time, they're learning how to work. They're learning how to do it themselves. They're seeing that they can be a part of our family and our success. I don't need them. But much in the same way, God doesn't need us. He wants us. And we need to realize we get to be part of the greatest rescue operation in the history of mankind. Matthew 28, 19 tells us that go and make disciples. That's our job. We know the Great Commission, but we don't, we often see it as a thing we should do, but we don't see it as like, it's our privilege. It's the best thing we could do. Or we can look at the fact that he doesn't want me because maybe something I did, something I said, I'm too far gone. There's a sin going on in my life. I'm not qualified. But look at verse 10. Do not fear. You don't need to fear. God doesn't need you to fear. God doesn't need to worry need you to worry about the details. You need to be about going and doing. Because a popular saying in circles is God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He set us apart for his purposes. He'll take care of the rest. I'm up here today. This isn't something I studied for, but I'm grateful for the opportunity. And we could even do a case study on Peter. Peter, I love that guy. He's so much like me, or I'm so much like him. He even says in verse 8, Go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. God used that sinner. He used him a lot. And Jesus didn't leave him when he messed up. Because Peter earned a lot of titles and not all of them good. Peter was a doubter. Peter was a Jesus denier. Peter was a loudmouth. Peter was a physical assailant. And Peter was a legalist. So you'd think all that, God has no use for him. God had great uses for him. He founded the church in Jerusalem. He was an apostle. He confronted the, the religious leaders boldly as an uneducated man. The greatest minds at that time religiously. And he took them to the woodshed. He brought the first gospel message to the Gentiles. And he was martyred. He gave his life willingly for Jesus. For the privilege of telling other people about God and their ability to know him. But what if I doubt? Does God, I don't feel like God uses a doubter. I doubt too much. I can't. We're going to take a quick field trip and let's flip over to Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 21 and I'll just give you a quick running head start about the story. Jesus had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and a crowd meets him and they're, they're pretty stirred up. And a father comes to him and tells him that my son is demon-possessed and your disciples, they couldn't, they couldn't cast it out. 
So Jesus, in verse 21, and he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and in the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believe. And in verse 24, we see the answer. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. It's something I've found myself praying more and more. And I love to know the how to do something. We, especially here, we've been taught from the word and we know the why. We know why we we should do things. Hopefully this can be a tool for you to take with you and put in your tool belt. I do believe. Help my unbelief. So, we're going to transition into silent prayer and application. But as we do, let's put both feet in and let our nets down for a catch. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. I'm grateful for this opportunity. Lord, we ask that you'd show us where we think our way is better, where we need to submit to your will in our lives. Help us in our walk to knock down the walls of doubt that we often place in front of things. Help us to be students of your word and to be about going and seeing people for what they are, made in the image of you. Unless we take action and be be about your being your messenger and your your vessel. Help us to see it as a privilege because that changes us. That changes the way that we see our tasks. Thank you for wanting us and thank you for wanting us to be a part of it. In your name we pray. Amen.